0: Signs and wonders. So we have a sign now. It's a sign. How many people noticed the sign when you came in? Okay, that's good. Yeah. It's one of those things that you're so used to that, you know, you come to church and you, your eyes are going this way and you don't notice it. And Anyway, there it is. Thank goodness. It only took a year. So that was good, right? Well, welcome back to part two of our Christmas series, The Unsettling Solution, for just about everything. If you missed last week, you can check it out on, uh, online at YouTube, or you can go to our website, bring it up there, or you can go to youtube.com um, forward slash Hammock Street church, you'll find it there. And as we talked about last week, and quite frankly, it's something I think about really every day, b- because this is my job, I'm supposed to do these things. I struggle to understand why everyone, and I, I, I mean everyone, why everyone wouldn't want the story of Jesus or the message of Jesus to be true. Because it really is the best way to live a life on this planet, period. Following Jesus' instructions, following Jesus' example, following Jesus' words just will give you the best way to live your life On this planet. Now, with that said, I'm not so naive as to not understand why many people feel like they aren't interested. Or why many people think like, well, it's not for them. As most of you know, as I've told you many times, I didn't grow up in the church. And I had a lot of negative perceptions about Jesus and about the people who claim that they follow Jesus. I had a lot of those things, and they certainly turned me away from even considering the church. But when I was finally able to punch through my paper walls, if you remember our last series, or or move past my prior excuses, and when I was finally able to learn the actual truth about Jesus and then study the things that he did and study the things that he taught, I found myself unable to resist him. And having considered and understood Jesus' ministry is detailed in the Gospels. Remember, when you're reading the New Testament, the New Covenant, the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call the Gospels. And the Gospels tell the story of Jesus' earthly ministry. The rest of the Bible talks about there's a book about the history of the church, the book of Acts. There's a book about, or there are books about, which are really just letters, letters written to the other churches of believers around the, around the area. Paul wrote the letters, and Peter wrote the letters, and James wrote the letters, and so on. So when you read the Gospels and you see how Jesus interacted with people who were far from God, when I first read those, I knew that's where I was going to spend my life. I wanted to spend my life telling people all about these things that nobody ever told me about, and I wanted to invite people into a relationship with him because of those stories. Now the version of Jesus that is laid out in the New Testament, as opposed to the version of Jesus that has sadly been put forth or been represented by many who claim to follow him. But the version of Jesus that's laid out in the New Testament is simply irresistible. It's impossible to resist. I don't understand why everybody wouldn't want it to be true. Now with that said, I do understand there's a distinction between wanting it to be true and believing it to be true. So for the first half of my life, I certainly didn't believe it was true. Maybe you can relate to that. Because of my experiences, I understand why many other people don't believe it's true. And I understand why some of you don't believe that it's true. Now I'm sure that every non-believer or even any skeptic that's here with us today, has their own reasons. Everybody has their own reasons. We all do that. We all have our own reasons for doing what we do and believing what we believe and so on. And maybe you had an unfavorable interaction with a Christian. Maybe it was a Christian relative. Maybe it was a Christian friend or neighbor. Maybe you had an off-putting experience with a Christian education. Maybe you went to Catholic school or Christian school. Maybe you had a, a teacher or a professor who persuaded you to believe that the Christian faith is just not valid. There's no evidence. It's not worth your time. Maybe, and this is particularly true of the younger folks among us, maybe the people you follow on social media dissuaded you from listening to the message of Jesus. Maybe you watched a YouTube video or a series of YouTube videos. Maybe you watched a TikTok or a series of TikToks. Let me ask a quick question. How many grown ups here, uh, let's call a grown up anybody who's over 30? How about that? How many grown ups here have a TikTok account or on TikTok? Anybody? You can admit it. I'm not going to like throw you out of here. I do. So don't, don't be afraid. It is, it is a, you know, the reason people are so afraid of it is it is really effective. They're the short, Entertaining little videos that they're not boring, they go really quick, and they sound so authoritative. Like whatever you listen to, the people who are talking sound like they really know what they're talking about. Some do. Most, in my experience, have no clue. Have no clue. We, I tell people this all the time. When, when we were kind of learning how to try cases and things like that, uh, there, was a, there was a saying, there was a phrase they would say, they would say, When the facts are on your side, pound the facts. And when the law is on your side, pound the law. And when nothing's on your side, pound the table. And on TikTok, there's a lot of table pounding. There's a, if you say it loud, emphatically, and with authority, people just believe you. And that's what happens. Some people don't believe because it's something they saw on TikTok. Maybe you had an awkward interaction with a Christian stranger. Maybe you're walking down a pier in Santa Monica and somebody with a big gigantic sign came up to you and told you you were going to hell. Maybe that was your problem. Maybe you're going to a concert and someone screamed at you as you were going in, oh, you're going to burn, you're going to burn. Maybe you had this kind of belligerent interaction with some stranger and you thought, whoever those people are, I don't want to be a part of them. I understand all of that. I've experienced all of that. But what I want to do today is explore not why you don't believe, but rather why you should believe. Because in the first century, and that's what just we refer to. Remember, Jesus kind of sits at that intersection between BC, we call it before Christ, and AD, which is basically after Christ was born. Anno Domini, it's a Latin phrase. But in the first century, when Jesus was in the midst of his earthly ministry, all sorts of people, religious people, unreligious people, irreligious people, Jewish people, Gentiles, they were all strongly attracted to Jesus. Jesus was attractional. He drew a crowd wherever he went. So it seems to me, and and I think it stands to reason, that if we could learn to represent and reflect the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible to the people in our day and age, to the people in our area they too should be able to find Jesus and the movement based upon following him. We know it as Christianity. It's been called many things over the years. In the Bible, they called it the way. But they should be able to find Jesus and this movement attractive once again. We say this quite a bit around here, but it always bears repeating. The people who were nothing like Jesus, the irreligious people, the sinners, the drunks, the tax collectors, they liked Jesus. And Jesus said he liked them too. And the reason that people like Jesus and the reason that people found Jesus so attractional comes down to one simple word. It's the word that makes me so desperately want it to be true. But perhaps it's a word that if you're still struggling with faith, you have too little experience with to truly, truly appreciate. And what's that word? Well, this is the word theme of what we're doing here in the run-up to Christmas. It's the word grace. Grace is defined as undeserved, unearned, and unearnable favor. Favor from God. Favor from God, not based on anything you did. It's favor from God, in fact, in spite of everything you've done. You'll hear me say it when I pray. God, thank you for loving me, even though you know everything about me. That's grace. God knows everything about me. He knows I don't deserve it at all, don't deserve the love at all, but I get it anyway. Favor from God in spite of everything you've done. Because whether you recognize it or not, grace is something that you crave throughout your life. It's what you crave whenever you've hurt somebody you love. When you hurt somebody you love, you want them to give you grace. You want them to say, I know you didn't mean it. I'm not holding it against you. Don't worry about it. That, that's, that's grace. You want grace whenever you've hurt or offended somebody that's important in your life your children, your parents, your coworkers, whoever that is. In those moments when we realize what we've done, and when we become aware that we can't take that back or we can't erase. Past, it is natural to want grace. In those moments, it's natural to want the people you've hurt or you've offended to treat you or see you as if whatever you had done never happened. If you're married, you know how that works, right? Right? I didn't mean that. I'm so sorry. Let's pretend I said it a different way. Uh, How would you like me to say it? Okay, let's pretend I said it that way. Can you give me, I always want you to give me the benefit of the doubt. If I've offended you, assume I didn't mean to. Have you guys, husbands, tried that one? I I don't know how effective it is yet. I'm still working on that. I'm only 31 years in, so I'm still working on to see how how that works. It's in those moments, though, that you want your relationship to that person to be completely healed and completely restored, notwithstanding anything you've done. It's in those moments that you want grace, undeserved, unmerited favor. Because as we're going to talk about next week, when correctly applied, grace really does solve just about everything when it comes to a man-woman relationship, a parent-child relationship, a friend relationship, a work relationship, any kind of relationship. But there's something interesting about grace. Until you experience grace, it is just a word. You can't really know what it's all about until it's applied to you. And here's why this is important. And here's why God had to show up among us as one of us. And this is the meaning of Christmas. We would never have fully understood the grace of God without the presence of God among us. And this is why John wrote in the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is why John wrote what he wrote and why it's so important. We talked about last week that John's gospel was the last gospel written, and it was written when John was already an old man. Now, it's interesting. Remember, this is 2,000 years ago. This is pre-Advil, pre-Tylenol, pre-Telemed, pre-warming creams and balms and things like that. Yes, there were natural medicines that people used, hit or miss. But these people, think about living to your 80s or to your 90s, 2,000 years ago. First off, what an accomplishment. Secondly, boy, imagine what kind of pain you have to put up with to get that far. But anyway, John wrote his gospel when he was an older man. John was the disciple closest to Jesus. When you read John's gospel, when you read John's writings, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. John was the one who spent the most time with Jesus. Remember, John was the one Jesus asked to take care of Mary when Jesus was crucified. So John started his account of the story of Jesus, his gospel, in the best place to start. John started at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. Do you remember what that means? We talked about it last week. We saw the Word for Word for Word that John used was the Greek word, logos. Logos is a very, very broad, spanning word. And by using this all-encompassing word, logos, John was saying that the logos, John was saying that everything that ever was, everything that ever existed, everything that ever was important, existed from the very beginning. It was all there in the very beginning. So now, who was John talking about when he referred to The Logos, well, he was talking about Jesus, God the Son. Hence, in the beginning was the Word, and the God the Son was with God, and God the Son was God. So in the beginning was God, and then a few lines later, a few verses later, in verse 14, God the Son, the Word, became flesh. Though it's certain John didn't understand how the Word became flesh, how would he know? he did understand that somehow Jesus was, in fact, God in a human body. As a friend of mine likes to say, God in a bod. John saw that God did indeed take on human flesh and come to live on earth because Jesus had made his dwelling among us. God in a bod made his dwelling among us. Who is God? Us, not me, us. I wasn't there. You weren't there. It's not me, you and me, us. Us was the disciples, us. God in in a bod made his dwelling, came to live among the disciples, John and Matthew and, and the others. And so John and the others saw firsthand, verse 14, they saw his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of what? Grace and truth. John told us that Jesus was full of grace, all grace, but also somehow at the very same time he was all truth as well. We talked about this a little bit last week. We all get to be like, oh, you know, 50-50 because there's only 100% we have, but somehow Jesus had 200%. All grace, all truth. We as Christians, we try to balance grace and truth But Jesus did something different. He was full of both. And people had a very hard time wrapping their heads around that concept. To them, that was really unsettling. How can you be full of both grace and truth? Isn't it sometimes more truth is more important? Sometimes grace is more important. Sometimes truth is necessary. Sometimes grace is necessary. Well, here's what I mean. One day, Jesus and the fellows were on the move. And they passed through the city of Jericho. By the way, Jericho is located in modern day West Bank of Israel, controlled by the Palestinian Authority. So isn't that interesting that we read the news and all the stuff we're reading in the news, we're reading in the Bible too. It's the same location, the same place. So we go to Luke chapter 19 verse 1. So Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through. He's just passing through. And there he met a man named Zacchaeus. How many people know that Zacchaeus was a wee little man song from growing up in in church Bible camp or anything. A couple of you? Okay. All right. So, he met a man named Zacchaeus. What's the deal with Zacchaeus? He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, of course, the reason why Zacchaeus was wealthy was because he was a chief tax collector. What does that mean? Well, it was Rome's practice at the time to use private enterprise as opposed to Roman government to collect their taxes. So, they didn't have an IRS. What they did was they would hire people and sort of contract with them to go out and collect the taxes that would be given to Rome. So people from the second rank of Rome's aristocracy, well, they would go to Rome and they would bid for the right to become a tax collector. And the highest bid, well, they got the business. So they got the profitable tax collecting business and the highest bid got the most profitable tax collecting business. They got the best routes. So by Zacchaeus' title as chief tax collector, we can assume that he paid a lot of money for his position. Now as chief tax collector, Zacchaeus had a number of lower-ranked tax collectors working under him. So they would collect taxes and then he would collect from them a percentage of whatever they took in. And Rome was totally okay with this. All Rome wanted was to get their taxes. So as long as Rome got what they wanted, tax collectors were entitled to keep whatever else they could manage to collect from the people. Now, of course, that assured something about Zacchaeus. He was both well-known and he was thoroughly hated. Everybody knew who Zacchaeus was. He's the chief tax collector. He's one of the richest tax collectors around, which means he was stealing from his people at a breakneck pace. So Luke told us. And remember about Luke, okay? Luke was the gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Luke was the gospel writer who wrote his gospel by interviewing as many eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry as he could find. So he must have spoken with a person who watched this scene unfold. That's how he knows that this happens. So we go to Luke 19 3. Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was. Okay, remember, Jesus is passing through Jericho. Word gets out, the rabbi's in town. Let's all go check him out. Let's all go see him. Jesus is passing through Jericho. Zacchaeus said, I got to see this guy. But because he was short, and this is kind of not nice, it's sort of a slam on short people. So sorry about that if you're a vertically challenged person here today. I didn't write it. It's just in the Bible. I'm reading it to you. So here you go. So from the text, here's what we can surmise. We can surmise that Zacchaeus didn't really want to meet Jesus in person necessarily. But he was interested in kind of laying eyes on him. I want to hear what all the hype's about. I got to see who this traveling rabbi is that everybody's talking about. So what does Zacchaeus do? Well, Zacchaeus runs ahead and climbs a sycamore tree, a fig tree, to see him since Jesus was coming that way. So it's kind of a funny thing. So there's kind of a smaller stature guy wearing, wearing a toga or a tunic, and he goes climbing up a tree like a, like a little kid. It was very uncommon for a grown man to climb a tree, especially while he's wearing a tunic. Like if you're walking under... No, never mind. So Zacchaeus really wanted to see Jesus, though. So he climbs a tree. We get to verse 5. And when Jesus reaches the spot where Zacchaeus is, he looks up and he goes, dude, put on some underwear. No, he goes, he goes, Zacchaeus, come down here immediately. And it, it's likely that when the people who were standing close by, heard Jesus's demand, they figured that Zacchaeus, remember, this guy's a thief and everybody knows it. They figured, aha, busted, right? He's finally going to get his comeuppance. They figured, oh, okay. The rabbi comes into town. He's calling this Zacchaeus out for his dishonest ways. So here's Zacchaeus shimmying down the tree in his tunic. And then Jesus says something that shocks the crowd. Here's what he says. I must stay at your house today. He didn't yell at him. He didn't say you're fired. He didn't do anything like that. He said, I want to stay at your house today. Now Zacchaeus, he was beside himself. He was elated. We look at verse 6. So he came down at once and welcomed Jesus gladly. Now, remember, the disciples never understood what Jesus was up to. They didn't understand everything until after the resurrection when they finally looked back and they said, oh, oh, that's what that meant. Okay, got it. They didn't know what he was up to. So we have to imagine that they were not too keen with their boss having them hang out with yet another tax collector. Remember, we talked about it last week. Jesus hung out with Matthew, with Levi. He was a tax collector. And the guys are like, oh, come on. We're not eating with that guy. He's a tax collector. Well, here he is again. So the people watching didn't approve either. How do we know? Verse seven: All the people saw this, and they began to mutter. A lot of muttering going on in the Bible, right like that. Oh, he's gone to be a—he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Remember, we said yes last week. Jesus dined with sinners, but he didn't sin with sinners. But the people in the crowd were interested in Jesus and his teachings for a reason. They were hoping that Jesus had come to do something about their Roman overlords. Then Jesus goes ahead and invites himself to the home of yet another traitor to their people. A turncoat. I mean, Jesus' request of Zacchaeus was also very unsettling to the people. And the story was unsettling to the people for the next few hundred years. People had a hard time getting over this. Until Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And the concept of God's grace was taught to more and more people on a wider and wider scale. And if you're tracking with the whole story, the concept of grace should be unsettling to you too. But Jesus saw the world in a much different way than we are inclined to see the world. Jesus saw the world through the lens of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus brought to the world a new understanding of the way that God sees us. And that new understanding stands in stark contrast to the way that we see ourselves and others. And it's for this reason that over and over again, Jesus tried to explain God's upside-down kingdom that he'd come to inaugurate with a new set of ethics and a new way of seeing and a new way of understanding the world in which we live. So over and over again, Jesus explains the kingdom by way of what? Parables. What's a parable? You guys should remember. They're made-up stories that make a true point. And regarding the way that grace applies in Jesus' upside-down kingdom, Jesus told another parable. And we find this parable in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Okay, so remember, as we get going, recall that to understand every parable, we ultimately need to identify two things. In every parable, there is a person who represents God, and there's a person who represents us. So as we continue on with this parable, if you can, try to figure out which one was which. All right, so the landowner, which means he's a rich guy, he goes out early in the morning, around 6 o'clock in the morning to hire workers to come work in his vineyard. He's growing grapes. So he pulls up to the local Home Depot where the day laborers would congregate looking for work for the day, and they're hoping somebody will hire them. So typically what would happen is a person would hire all the workers that they need for the day in the morning at the same time, so they can be working all day long. A, a, A landowner would be mainly interested in hiring enough people to get the job done And much less concerned with with who the people are that are going to do the work. It didn't matter. I need five guys because I'm going to be digging a hole. I need ten guys because I'm going to be doing this. And you just count them out. So, as the workers expected, we go to verse 2. The landowner finds the people and he agrees to pay them. I'll pay you a denarius for the day. And he sent them into his vineyard. All right, 6 o'clock in the morning. Ready? We keep on going in verse 3. Three hours later, at about 9 o'clock in the morning, the landowner, he goes out again. And this time he's in the marketplace. He sees people standing there. They're doing nothing. So the landowner told them, verse 4, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they said, hey, cool. We didn't think we're doing anything today. We'll go work for you. So they went. Now, if you've heard this parable before, you probably know what happens. And it's very unsettling. Because what happens is, is quite unfair. In fact, what happens is worse than unfair. It's the exact opposite of everything that people have experienced in this life. But that's the way that the upside-down kingdom of God works. So we continue on with the parable. We go to verse 5. The landowner goes out again at about noon. Went out at 6, went out at 9. Now he's going out at noon. So the rest of the crew's probably taking their lunch break. The landowner goes back to Home Depot. He finds some more workers. He goes, hey, are any of you guys interested in doing some work today? And then verse 5, about 3 in the afternoon, does the same thing. So you see, what we, you see what's happening here? Throughout the day, the landowner keeps going out, keeps getting more workers to come work in the vineyard. And I'm sure every time he goes out, he keeps saying, how about you guys? There's still a few hours left in the day. You want to do some work? You want to do some work? You want to do some work for me? And then Jesus takes the parable to this most unsettling direction of all. He goes out at five in the afternoon. Six o'clock, nine o'clock, noon, three o'clock, five o'clock. Found still others standing around. People aren't working a lot in this parable, right? There's a lot of people standing around not doing anything at five o'clock in the afternoon. So he asked them, why have you been standing here all all day long doing nothing? They said, because no one's hired us. Good answer, by the way. So he said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. If you're not there already, the landowner went back to the Home Depot at 5 o'clock, meaning that there was, what, an hour left before the sun went down? And he found even more guys standing around. And he hired them to work in his vineyard. Now, undoubtedly, the audience listening was very confused. And they're probably thinking, all right, how's the landowner going to work all this out? Some guys worked 12 hours, some guys worked 9 hours, others worked about 6 hours, and the last workers only worked about an hour. I mean, this landowner is going to need an accountant to know how to pay everybody, isn't he? This is not easy. And knowing what they were likely thinking, Jesus teases out the end of the story a little bit. Here's what he says, verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages. Beginning with the last ones hired, and then going on to the first. Jesus says to the landowner, let's get these guys paid. Start with the people who worked about an hour. And here comes the wrinkle. Here comes the point of the parable, where Jesus reveals what God is like. And it is very unsettling. Because most of us have been taught to believe that the guys who worked all day The guys who work the most hours are the ones whom God would favor more. They did more work, so God would favor them more, right? I mean, clearly, of course, God will look more favorable on people who work harder, right? I mean, they were the most diligent. They did everything they could. They worked the hardest. So naturally, God's going to reward them the best, the most, right? But the text continues, verse 9. The workers who were hired at 5 in the afternoon came... And each of them received a denarius. Do you see it? The one-hour workers received the amount that the original workers were promised. Which has me guessing that the other workers who were kind of waiting for their pay were very excited at first. They were thinking, if those guys got a denarius for just that little bit of work they did, imagine how much we're going to get paid it looks like the landowner's not paying a denarius a day. He's paying a denarius an hour. We're going to be rich. That's what Matthew says in verse 10. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But that's not what happened. Continuing on in verse 10, each one of them also received a denarius. What did they do when they received exactly what they agreed to receive based upon the number of hours they agreed to work when they received it. Remember, at the very beginning, at 6 o'clock in the morning, he said, I'll pay you denarius if you work all day. And they said, we're in. Well, when they received it, they began to, there it is again, grumble against the landowner. They grumbled against the landowner, just like the religious people outside Matthew's house that we talked about last week, just like the people in Jericho who got there early for the parade who didn't get to meet Jesus individually because Jesus singled out that disgusting Zacchaeus and went to his house. And so the laborers in the parable respond to the men who hired them. So they said, hold on, hold on, boss man. Verse 12, these who were hired last only worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. They said, what the heck, Mr. Landowner? Those people are not equal to us. We worked harder. We worked more hours. We didn't even take a lunch break. We worked right through the heat of the day. We arrived early. We stayed late. We're better than them. You can't treat us all the same. But the landowner replied, am I not being unfair to you, friend? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? I mean, you agreed to this. Now take your pay and go. And then Jesus, by way of the vineyard owner, gave us a clue about the way of life he's inviting us into. Here's what the landowner said. The landowner said, I want. Wait a minute. So this is about what the landowner wanted, not what the workers felt they're entitled to do. Apparently that's the case. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Wait a minute. I understand that you want to give the short-time workers the denarius because they certainly didn't work hard enough to earn it, but you're not giving us anything. We worked for it. We earned it. Well, you did give us a job, when we didn't have a job, but that's not what we're talking about here. You're going to ignore that little factoid. So the landowner continues, and he says, don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Then the landowner delivers the lesson, and Jesus gave them the convicting part. And it was at this moment that the people listening figured out who they were in the parable, as Jesus clarified the futility of resisting God's grace. And it's here that you can see whether you figured out who you are in the parable. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? Are you resentful because I'm generous, God said? That's a little convicting. That smarts a little bit. We don't want that to be said about us. We don't don't want God to say about us, are you upset because I'm generous? Are you envious that some people get into heaven, let's say, and don't work as hard as you did to get into heaven? You don't want that to be said. That's kind of petty, isn't it? That's kind of immature, isn't it? We go, no, 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 Lord, of course. No, no, we're not that petty. And then under our breath we say, I just think I'm owed more money because I work more. That's all. I don't know. But the truth is, this is who we are. This is what we're all like. We all do it. We all see ourselves like the guys who work the full day and deserve more than the other guys. And in this parable and in all of his parables, Jesus invites you and he invites me to see the world differently and to see the people around us differently because the kingdom of heaven is characterized by unsettling generosity. And through this parable, Jesus is asking us, can you handle that? Jesus is asking us, will you be a part of the movement where the undeserving get exactly what they don't deserve? And because your heavenly Father gave you exactly what you don't deserve, won't you be willing to extend the same thing to others, to extend the same grace to others? And what do we, obedient, early to the job people say? This is a hard one. This is a convicting one. Well, it was there that Jesus ended the parable and he said this, you've heard this before probably, the last will be first and the first will be last, which means in essence, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what the movement that I've come to introduce to the world is like and when you fully embrace it, when you embrace it every day, it just might feel like the last are first and the first are last. And it just might feel unfair because of the way you've always measured fairness But grace changed things. Grace changes everything. Jesus' grace is always connected to truth. And the truth is that we've all fallen short of God's standard. And though I can understand why you might not believe it's true, if you'll just give it the tiniest bit of thought, there's got to be something inside of you that'll wonder, but what if it is true? Because the system that Jesus left us with at the end of his ministry, the system that Paul and Peter and John and the others would develop and and tease out over the years and explain to us, that system is much, much better than just fair. In the kingdom of God, everyone is welcome. The people who show up at 6 a.m., the people who show up at noon, the people who show up at 3 p.m., and the people who come in at the very last minute. The people who know better, and those who just didn't. The people like me, and the people who couldn't be more different. Everybody is welcome in the kingdom of God. The people with baggage, the people with regret, the people with a past, even the self-righteous people who judge those people with baggage in the past, they're all invited into the kingdom of God. And everybody is admitted into the kingdom of God in the same exact way, through grace and truth. Through the grace and truth that Jesus personified. Jesus, who called sin, sin, and called sinners, sinners, and then died for them all. Jesus, who never backed down, who never said sin wasn't sin, but laid down his life for the sins of the sinners. Everyone comes through Jesus, and everyone comes through Jesus the same way, by placing their personal faith in him as their Savior, and by trusting that what he did on our behalf made us right with God, regardless of how not right we have been, regardless of how unsettling that might sound. That is the unsettling solution to just about everything. So before we finish up today, I want to give those of you who've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior an opportunity to do that today, do that right now. And I want to give those of you who might have done so as a child, but maybe wandered away for a while, but have now found your way back, an opportunity this Christmas season to say, on December 10th, 2023, I renewed my faith in Christ. And I'd like you to do that by simply reading out loud a simple prayer that encapsulates the gospel. But before I show it to you, I want to make sure you understand. The words I'm going to put up on the screen are not magic words. They're not sacred, special words that if you mess it up or you say it wrong or something like that, you're in trouble. They just convey the things that we need to say when we decide to answer God's call of faith in our lives. So while I'm reading it, if you'd like to join me, you're welcome to read it aloud with me. But here we go. If you'd like to commit your life to Jesus now, or you'd like to rededicate yourself to Jesus today, here is your opportunity, okay? So here are the words. Heavenly Father, I fall short every day. I need what I don't deserve, to be forgiven of my sin and restored to you. I believe that Jesus' death on my behalf accomplished both. It brought me forgiveness and restoration. So today I place my faith in Him as my Savior and Lord. Today I'm committing my whole life to Jesus, relying upon what He did on my behalf. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, if you prayed it to yourself, if you said it out loud with me, this might just be the best Christmas season you've ever had. And if you did so, please let me know that you prayed it. Because I'd like to talk to you about going deeper. And now... As we wrap up, I'd like to pray for everybody. So if you'd bow your heads, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that for 2,000 years, millions and millions of people have expressed that kind of childlike faith in you. And you change your lives. You change their lives. And you change the trajectory of their lives. And you change the way that they see people and the way that they see themselves. So, Father, today, for the person who saw this for the very first time or rediscovered something they'd lost track of long ago, I pray that you would give them eyes to see as never before and that you would confirm this decision in some tangible way for them during this Christmas season. Thank you, Father, for letting your son into the world. Thank you for sending him in as a baby. Thank you for allowing us through the Gospels to watch him grow up and live life and face all the things that we face to watch him do so without sin so he could give his life for our sin. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.